and here we are. Welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Today we're going to cover kind of three stories here. We're going to do um, a little bit more about that Campagnola story. We're going to do um, part two of the Shimano story. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, being a race mechanic on transfer day, specifically transfer day during a stage race. So let's get right into it here. Um, so last time we talked about Campagnola, we talked about the introduction of the quick release. Um, and so we continue kind of on that journey um, of uh, the introduction of that mechanism. So keep in mind at this point in the bicycle industry, um, in bicycle history, a, a derailleur is, is not what we see on today's bicycles. Uh, back in the beginning, it was um, a long uh, bar lever, um, a guide of some kind, which kind of looks more like a, a modern front derailleur, if you see any pictures of it. Um, and in many designs, a pulley of some kind, which kind of hung low um, below the, the chain stay um, on the uh, drive side. So... On February 8th, 1930, uh, Tulio Campagnola registered his first of 185 patents. It was baptized as Gears for Cycling. And there's an old uh, Italian adage that says, uh, advertising is the soul of commerce. And Tulio was really good at this. So uh, he received a loan of 3,000 lira from a lawyer, Zilio Grande, and this allowed Tulio to travel races all over Italy to show off his quick release. And it was it, it was soon adopted by bicycle uh, producers such as Bianchi, uh, Atala, and Lignano. And so it took a, a big leap to go into the into mass production and co commercialization. Um, in 1933, he founded uh, the Campagnola Company. Uh, with its headquarters um, in the back room of his father's workshop in uh, Corso Padova. It should be noted that, that it, it took a lot of courage to start at this time. Um, Italy was a country led by a fascist regime with uh, Benito Mussolini at its head. Um, fascism took an almost hostile stance toward the sport of cycling. Um, Cycling, according to the, the fascist regime, was closer to the peasant world than the ideals of uh, modern power and speed that fed the regime's propaganda at the time. Uh, newspapers would announce that cycling is in decline in attempts to please the government. In 1934, 25 Italian athletes were summoned to be decorated by Mussolini for sporting valor. And among them was not a single cyclist. Nevertheless, uh, Tulio continued his pursuit of uh, perfecting bicycle technology while also promoting himself, his, himself and his creations uh, by traveling from race to race and talking to professional cyclists and collected their ideas and suggestions. Uh, at, at this time, uh, brothers... Amidio and Tommaso Nideu, machinists uh, from Sardinia, had patented a complicated device that ensured its user success, calling it Vittoria, Italian for victory. So it consisted of a single, uh, of a spring-loaded lever with uh, the chain tightener ring located 
at the far end of an extension arm reaching toward the ground and three gears mounted on the rear hub. So uh, basically a three speed uh, freewheel. It was, it was very complicated. Um, to change gears, uh, the racer had to make a sharp back pedal uh, to block its action while at the same time reaching down to move the chain from one sprocket to another with, with uh, the fingers of one hand pressing on a lever fixed to the hub. As you can imagine, the chain would often jam uh, while this system was improved upon many times over the following years, its production came to an end in 1952 with the advent of the more functional derailleurs, such as the Cambio Grand Sport, which uh, more resembles derailleurs we see today. So here's where we see a little bit of a, a similarity between uh, the Campagnola story and our Shimano um, American Corporation uh, and our Shimano story we started last week. So. Uh, Tulio did in the 1930s what Schwinn and eventually uh, Shimano America Corporation did uh, by going around to visit uh, mechanical workshops, known as bike shops obviously, to show uh, his pieces which cost more than other be others because uh, Tulio did not use ordinary materials because he wanted uh, his to be the best. In 1937, uh, Tulio's sister Amelia uh, financed his trip to follow the tour. Uh, it was the first year uh, the tour would allow the use of gear changers. Um, Roger Lapiebe won the 1937 tour using the Super Champion gear changing system. It did have a major flaw, uh, just like the Vittoria and the Vittoria Margarita, uh, the, ch the chain stretcher uh, located beneath the chain wheel, which was an overly exposed position to road hazards such as stones or any obstacle banging into it, um, often causing it to malfunction. Uh, these these systems both required some skill to operate them efficiently, correctly, especially uh, in racing conditions. Um, races could be won or lost uh, by the racer's level, level of ability in using these systems. Um, so on May 4th, 1940, uh, Tulio Campagnola patented uh, his first version of the dual rod gear changer. Um, as the name indicates, it used uh, two rigid levers. So one lever operated the QR of the rear wheel and the other operated uh, the derailleur by, by moving the chain from side to side to, uh, to the desired uh, freewheel cog. Um, the, the changer was still complicated and required some talent, like I said, to use it properly. Um, so here's kind of the, the steps in order. Um, number one, operate the long lever to release the rear wheel. Number two, backpedal and operation of the shorter lever outward or inward to move the chain to the desired sprocket. Uh, three, repositioning of the long lever and regulation of the tension of the chain and then return to pedaling. So pretty, pretty complicated um, and, and kind of jumping forward a little bit. So with the introduction of, of the Campagnola Grand Sport derailleur in 1950, this would be a derailleur that would not require any of, the, any of the, these steps required by the previous derailleurs. Um, uh, in 1956, Campagnola introduced uh, dropouts, headsets, and pedals. Uh, and then again in 1959, a crankset. Uh, the, concept, the concept of a Grupo was introduced. 
Um, later expanding on this concept, uh, manufacturers design components to work perfectly with the other pieces in the same group set as a, con as a concept lost later in bicycle production due to costs. So kind of what we see in modern day uh, manufacturers is in, in my estimation, you see, pull the bicycle out of the box as a mechanic and you see the, the derailers and the, the derailer that always seems to be the higher end one, the showcase is the rear derailer. And then everything else is somewhat downgraded. And we see different, different cranks from different companies. We don't see, we don't often see an entire bike with uh, Shimano Ultegra or um, a whole bike with um, Shimano 105 throughout. It's usually a mix match of of component manufacturers um, in different levels on each one. So and that, that's kind of one of my beefs with kind of modern modern bikes that are uh, production bikes is is kind of that we kind of lost um, this idea of the Grupo, which um, when I was growing up and first started working in a in a shop, it was. It was the thing. You bought the the frame and fork, and then you bought the Grupo. You bought the Campagnola Chorus Grupo or the Shimano Dura Ace Grupo. Um, don't see that so much anymore. It's kind of sad. So there's that, and that's kind of where we'll end our our Campagnola story for this week. I don't know that we'll we'll do a whole lot more on Campagnola because um, kind of wanted to cover the early days and kind of all of those early inventions um, that were so key to cycling. So. So there's that, um, and we will now uh, take a, a step here, and we'll move on to um, talk a little bit more about uh, Shimano and kind of their beginnings. So a little bit of a, a, a small recap here as to kind of where we left off with the Shimano story. Um, so the Shimano America Corporation had been established on July 1st, uh, 1965, uh, began with only three staff members, and... Um, Yoshizo was the president um, at, of Shimano American Corporation at this time, and he was chosen because he um, had taken taken English lessons in school as a youngster and had really um, done well and was often, uh, his teacher was very impressed um, by his, uh, his English, and he studied it a lot because he kind of someday felt like he wanted to go to America, so he got his chance. And so, so shortly after moving to the U.S., uh, Yoshizo's family uh, joined him in New Jersey. Uh, the offices in were, were in New York. And uh, his, his wife had, had given up her ambitions to become a, a concert pianist uh, to raise a family. Um, well, Yoshizo would uh, try to get Shimano a foothold in the U.S. market. Um, it was very tough for uh, Yoshizo, even though uh, manufacturers welcomed Shimano's visits. Um, None would buy the products at first. Uh, so Yoshizo and his vice president um, of Shimano America Corporation, uh, Mitsharu Hotani, visited many manufacturers, uh, bringing along usually a projector uh, and a screen for presentations as well as samples of products. Um, so these bicycle manufacturers would, would say, none of our customers want to buy bicycles with Shimano components. Uh, even though the manufacturers knew the Shimano name, uh, few retailers and retail customers had ever heard of Shimano. Uh, one manufacturer said, if you create the demand, we will purchase your products. So at, at this time, about 6 million uh, complete bicycles were, 
were annually uh, sold in the U.S. Um, these were sold through about 6,000 uh, individual bicycle retailers and mass, mass merchandisers such as uh, Sears, Roebuck, and company. Um, Sears sold about 1 million bicycles a year. Um, there were about uh, 40 wholesalers specializing in bicycle parts supply. Uh, Yoshizo decided it was um, of the utmost importance that bicycle retailers knew and understood Shimano products. So he visited buyers uh, at, at mass merchandisers and held uh, seminars for uh, local bicycle dealers. He uh, would carry a bag filled with various items such as sample parts, brochures, and even some design drawings. Um, at these clinics, Yosh Yoshizo explained to retailers uh, Shimano's concepts of uh, manufacturing and described the materials and manufacturing methods used for them. He explained that Shimano products were of high quality and that spare parts were also available. He would uh, disassemble and reassemble Shimano's three-speed internal um, hub gear at these clinics as well. So it, it's important to, to remind ourselves that at this time, the U.S. bicycle market uh, was 70 to 80 percent of the demand was for children's models. Uh, most popular being uh, high-riser handlebars and the banana saddle. Um, kind of like, if anybody watches Stranger Things, kind of like the, the couple of the bikes that the kids ride on that show. Um, where if you grew up in that era, like I did, you kind of remember those bikes. Um, so Shimano decided uh, that this would be their immediate target. Um, and finally, uh, Sears Roebuck uh, and company tested equipment in their laboratory and gave Shimano products a high rating. So... Uh, they started uh, using Shimano's three-speed internal hubs for its children's bicycles. Uh, this marked the first time Shimano would deal with a bicycle manufacturer that wasn't Schwinn. Shimano would in incorporate changes in into their products to, to improve functionality as well as uh, trying to make them fun. Um, exam an example would be uh, putting uh, a, uh, a box-type uh, shifter lever on on these kids' bikes to resemble an auto stick shift. Um, communication from uh, Shimano America Corporation back to the headquarters was a daily event uh, via airmail and sometimes telegraphs. Uh, using abbreviations, uh, they devised to limit the number of letters to reduce cost. Um, uh, no copy machine or fax and telephone uh, charges were so high they didn't use this method uh, unless it was something urgent. When Yoshizo would, would visit manufacturers and retailers, they would uh, enthusiastically ask, uh, what did you bring today? He would take uh, various things out of his bag, such as new products, improved parts, and upgrade design, uh, upgraded design drawings. Um, this heavy bag became known as the magic bag. Uh, during this time, Shimano American Corporation moved into the black and eliminated its deficits uh, in 1967. So around 1970, there was a shift in the U.S. bicycle market. Previously, bicycles were considered toys for children uh, for the most part. Um, adults became interested in bicycles as a way to enjoy the outdoors and for sport. Um, one of the ways this happened was uh, the advent, advent of charity rides. Uh, cycling clubs became more popular and started popping up um, in many towns across the U.S., Yoshizo thought uh, if people change their ways of enjoying cycling, the requirements for bicycles have to change too. 
manufacturers try to stay up to date on the growing and changing demands of the U.S. consumer um, at the time, but it was difficult because it was changing. Uh, Murray, Ohio uh, president uh, Bill Hannon once said, uh, create demand if you want to sell your products. Uh, top U.S. manufacturer at the time was uh, Schwinn. Um, even, to, even today, the name Schwinn brings uh, to us uh, a bicycle mechanics, uh, brings us many images of a bicycle. Uh, some of them good, um, some bad, uh, and some of them really heavy. Um, back, uh, back then, Schwinn staff members were, um, were very proud of their company. Uh, Yoshizo began to form a, a, an informal relationship with uh, the Schwinn vice president, Al Fritz. Um, Al had climbed up through the ranks of Schwinn uh, through his own efforts. Uh, by this time, uh, Frank W. Schwinn, a former president of the company, had passed, but Yoshizo remembers uh, discussions with, uh, with Mr. Fritz and others who knew Frank well, um, including his chauffeur. Um, Frank Schwinn would at, at times disappear from the office. Uh, he would leave with his chauffeur and uh, they'd be gone for two to three months at a time. So what was he doing? He was, he was going to visit the company's customers. Uh, and here's kind of a cool thing. He, he would enter uh, the retailers through the back doors and first meet with the mechanics and ask about uh, defective products, weak points of products, um, and kind of hang out with them for a little while. And only after this, he would, uh, this visit with the mechanics, he would visit the sales floor. Shimano uh, American Corporation sales were steady at this time. Uh, however, Yoshizo had uh, received um, unfavorable responses from uh, specialty bike stores. Um, so he asked them why, uh, and their response uh, was both mass uh, merchandisers and specialty stores deal with bicycle, bicycles with Shimano components. If, if both stores sell the same bicycles, customers will buy from the mass merchandisers because the prices are lower than at specialty stores. So specialty stores wanted to deal uh, with different types of bicycles than those found at mass merchandisers. So Yoshizo decided it was time to visit all the bicycle specialty stores in the US. Talk about a large undertaking. Um, so what he did was he, he created a team of uh, younger staff in their late 20s, uh, were chosen for uh, uh, from the sales promotion teams to visit all of the the 6,000 individual bicycle dealers in the U.S. Um, they were called uh, caravan teams. And that's kind of where we'll leave our Shimano story for this week. Uh, we will probably be able to finish it up uh, in uh, our next episode or uh, episode after the next um, to uh, get us all caught up on Shimano, but uh, pretty interesting stuff. So uh, my final little bit I would like to cover here, a little story is uh, I'd like to talk about a um, little kind of a story from the road, but kind of more specifically about stage race uh, transfers, uh, transfer day, everyone's favorite as a team mechanic. Um, so as a race mechanic, race day transfers uh, can be one of the many driving uh, and setting up duties you will perform uh, as a as a race mechanic so a stage race can be any length from three days to 21 days depending on the race um, 
modern ground grand tours are typically three weeks long with one or two rest days um, they used to be 28 days long um, imagine that uh, grand tours um, are the uh, the tour de france the giro d'italia the vuelta espana um, in my day i worked many uh 10-day stage races uh, the longest was i think about 16 days um, of all the stage races i worked the the tour du pont on the east coast was was probably my favorite um, it kind of took the place of the course classic or the red zinger um, which uh, took place in the 70s and 80s um, the, the tour du pont was always uh, a highlight of the season when i when i wrenched for the u.s national team and uh, and chevrolet la sheriff's team after that and, and so it, it was such a big race for the U.S. national team uh, when I worked for them that we were allowed a second mechanic, which pretty much never happened, um, except for maybe the uh, world championships. Um, so I had been uh, to Italy for about two and a half weeks prior and had some time um, at home in Colorado before heading out to Delaware for the start of the Tour du Pont. I remember uh, arriving in Delaware and being told we would have our own uh, box truck kind of a rental truck um, to keep the bikes in and use for uh, transfer days. Um, it, it was a decent sized truck with lots of storage and it was, it was pretty easy to drive, although I didn't, I wasn't the one that had to drive it too often. Um, the organization provided the truck uh, for all the teams since most teams um, would be coming over from Europe uh, would need it. Um, the only team that didn't need it was the Motorola team uh, because they already had uh, a big uh, badass truck of their own. Um, the first four days uh, in Delaware were spent uh, at the hotel working out of the truck, uh, prepping team time trial bikes and readying the racers' road bikes uh, for the next 10 days of racing. So with, with two mechanics in a stage race, um, like the Tour du Pont, you only, have, uh, you only have one follow car in the caravan, unlike the Grand Tours, which have two follow cars, basically two caravans. Um, so the only, the only race I ever worked with two caravan vehicles was the, the Tour of Malaysia um, when my uh, fellow mechanic Dave Pitts uh, took, the sole, took sole control of the second team car as driver and mechanic. Um, I'm surprised that uh, Dave was able to stay awake, but he did. Um, so so uh, the way it works is the mechanic not going in the race follow car uh, was appointed to do the transfer to drive the big truck. Um, which included uh, driving the truck from the current hotel uh, we were checking out of, um, also gathering uh, the other staff and racers' luggage to bring uh, to the new hotel um, to check in and bring to their rooms um, at the finish or usually near the finish. Uh, the next hotel was usually located fairly near the finish uh, so the racers could cool down after the race by riding uh, directly to the, uh, the, the new hotel. Um, so kind of a funny story here that I thought of when I was, uh, doing this was, um, once at the Tour du Pont, a fellow mechanic, uh, Jim O'Brien, um, super cool dude worked, uh, with him lots of, he worked with, he's worked with a lot of different teams and, uh, even worked uh, with me, uh, once with the Chevrolet LA Sheriff's team at the Tour du Pont. So I don't remember who exactly Jim was working for this time, but, um, he was in charge of the truck for transfer days and after a few transfers one of the european teams uh, drivers had decided it was easier just to follow jim uh, 
in his truck to the next hotel rather than navigate it himself. Um, keep in mind, uh, no GPS nav systems available at this time. Uh, in the mid nineties, it was a, a road atlas, um, and times in our case, the, the race Bible with the, the hotel info. So little side note, the race Bible is a stage race, uh, for a stage race, it has all the info you'd need for the entire race, including the race routes, start, finish, locations, hotel, uh, race rules, and uh, et cetera. Lots of, lots of stuff in there. Um, so anyway, back to the story. One, one morning, Jim had to take a uh, long detour uh, on the way to the next hotel. Um, I forget exactly, but I think he had to take a racer who dropped out of the race to the airport or something. Um, not sure, but... So, so Jim, knowing that the European team was uh, going to follow him, tried to convey, uh, you know, with a language barrier that he wasn't going directly to the next hotel, but he couldn't get the message across to this team's uh, truck driver. Uh, so he followed Jim on a, on a two to, to three hour diversion before finally ending up at the Finnish hotel. I remember Jim seemed like he felt kind of bad about it, but with the, the language barrier, the guy didn't really understand and just kind of followed Jim. So sometimes the, the most challenging uh, stage race transfers came while uh, I was in a foreign country. Uh, it seemed like we were always removing rear seats of vans at the airport and finding a, a place to store them until the trip was over for storage space. Um, once in France at the, the Tour de Lode, a women's uh, race, uh, space was a real challenge. Uh, even though we were able to store a bunch of stuff like bike bags and other stuff um, uh, and the seat from the van at a at the start hotel where we would finish after about 12 days, um, we still had major storage issues. So um, stage races uh, sometimes use buses to transport racers from hotel to the start and then uh, finish close enough to the next hotel the racers can just uh, ride to it. But this race didn't do that. Um, we had to transport the racers uh, in just the follow car and our van. So sometimes internationally, the actual stage race will provide the team with a follow car, which usually will have a rack on it already um, and kind of set up uh, to be a follow vehicle. But this was not the case in the, the Tour de Load uh, that year with the Saturn team. Um, thankfully, uh, back in Wisconsin, we had uh, figured out how to use a U-bolt system to bring our Thule rack set up to, uh, to Europe and Malaysia. And, um, we had attached it to the factory side rail rack. Uh, it was genius. It was a U-bolt, uh, a plate, two nuts and two washers and away you go. Um, the rack had, uh, six, uh, fork mounted trays and just a, a couple of wheel holders. Um, so I would put six bikes on the rack on the, uh, and toe strap one bike uh, facing sideways uh, at the front of the rack and one the same way on the rear of the rack attached to the other six bikes there. Uh, then put uh, all the extra wheels in between all the six originally mounted bikes and run a, a, a Thule strap through it. Um, special attention was uh, taken with cardboard and cloth to not scratch the roof of the, the Volkswagen uh, wagon that we had. Um, it worked well. Uh, nothing ever came loose or fell off, uh, which is an accomplishment, although uh, loading and unloading it did uh, take some time. Um, 
By the last couple days, though, the, the factory rack began to separate from the roof of the vehicle. So, so we ran a blue Thule strap through the, the front windows uh, and th through the rack uh, just in case. Um, and sometimes while driving a, a crazy section of the, of the race, uh, Rene, uh, our team director, while he was driving, would put his hand out the window and hold the rack down uh, in an attempt to keep it from uh, coming more loose. Um, it was pretty entertaining. So, so we started off with a, a, a little extra space uh, during, during transfers, but uh, the team just kept winning and uh, thus accumulating baskets of flowers, stuffed animals, and other things uh, from the podium. Um, every morning we'd, we'd load up and we would get the racers luggage into the vehicles and they'd start showing up with all kinds of extra bags and stuff. I, I'll never forget, uh, Renee saying to me, this, this bag lady shit has to stop, uh, fully know, fully knowing it was, uh, unstoppable. Uh, by the final few days, uh, when the racers would get in, um, we would we would hand them items to keep on their laps while driving. Um, the looks uh, they gave us were were pretty funny. And so uh, a few other memorable transfers um, that uh, from my days as being a team mechanic. Um, one I would recall would be the tour of China, um, where sometimes uh, transfers included a plane flight. Um, all the bikes went into a, a storage container, uh, hope, hopefully in the bike bags, uh, and then flown to the next city. Um, pretty interesting. Uh, a little stressful unpacking them and wondering, you know, how they were packed in and, you know, everything made it okay. But definitely uh, without, not without stress uh, for riders and mechanics. Um, another one that I recall kind of is uh, the, the Tour of Mexico, the Ruta Meco. Um, so fitting all the bikes and spare wheels and luggage into a small car and a Volkswagen bus with no roof rack. Um, it was a tight squeeze. I, I remember uh, uh, when we found out we had to do this, um, I was talking to the Motorola mechanics and one of them uh, telling me that uh, it was time for um, mechanics to uh, figure out their spatial awareness um, and it was about to be tested. That pretty much sums up uh, international transfer days. Um, it makes you, it really makes you appreciate using your own team vehicles uh, when you're back in the stage for sure. And so that concludes the Bicycle Mechanics podcast. The um, Bicycle Mechanics podcast at gmail.com is where you can leave any questions, comments, or grievances. Also, don't forget to follow on the Bicycle Mechanics podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.